Welcome to Friendly Words, the sermon podcast of Pratt Friends Church in Pratt, Kansas. The message you're about to hear was originally preached at Pratt Friends Church on Sunday, August 28, 2022. It focuses on dealing with and overcoming temptation. The message to all who will listen is God is with you and will help you when you are tested. Now, here is Pastor Mike Neifert. Let's pray together. God, you are so good to us. You have invited us to come into your presence and to fellowship with you, to find rest in you, to find comfort and direction. And God, we've sung those things, and now we want to hear your word and let it direct us by your spirit at work in us. We submit to you because you have all authority in heaven and on earth. And why would we not submit to the loving God, the God who sent his son to die for us and to rescue us from the dominion of darkness? Hallelujah. Amen. Before I ask you a question, I need to say one thing. I will not be putting pictures of snakes up on the screen. You don't have to cringe and look away as I get ready to click the clicker. And you don't have to be worried when I ask a snake-related question. I have no intention of triggering any who suffer from ophidiophobia. That's the fear of snakes. Now for the question I'm about to click. What do you do when you find a snake skin in your camper? You freak out. Okay, not a question most of us have to answer on a regular basis, but someone in our church told me this week that they were faced with this troubling question. I think they even posted about it on Facebook, but they talked to me beforehand, uh, and I just want to say better them than me. You're all thinking it, right? Okay. So what are the options for those who find a snakeskin in their camper? They could, A, burn the camper and get a new one. (laughs) Two, ignore the snakeskin and go camping anyway. Or three, trap the snake before they go camping. Those are the three options we're going to explore. So option one, burn the camper and buy a new one, is only viable if you happen to be a billionaire. And believe it or not, no one who comes to this church is a billionaire. Not that I know of anyway. Maybe you're hiding it well. I don't know. So uh, option B is to ignore the skin, and that works if everybody involved is okay with snakes crawling into bed with them. Nobody's okay with that. As long as they're not vicious. vicious. Ah, Nope, not even if they're not vicious. I don't want a snake in my bed. The particular woman of the household from our church who ha- saw the snakeskin is not keen on that. So that option's out as well. So option C, trapping the snake, makes the most sense if you are a normal person with a normal amount of aversion to snake encounters and a normal amount of money. Okay. Having determined the best option, at least in my opinion, we come to the obvious follow-up question, which is, how do you trap an unwanted snake so you can sleep in peace during the outing that you're preparing your camper for? I asked Google the question. The answer given by nearly everyone is to get a minnow trap. I'm going to show you a picture of one. 
There will not be a snake when I click. Ready? So this is a minnow trap. There's not much to look at, right? It's a mesh cage of sorts with two small openings at the ends. You can't really tell in this picture, but there's like funnels that go in. Okay, they, those holes are on funnels that go in. And so that's what a minnow trap looks like. What do you bait the thing with? Well, if you're trying to trap a snake, the best bait, according to Google, is farm fresh eggs. Like right out of the chicken's backside. <laughs> the snake, enticed by the smell of the eggs, which they happen to like. You notice that snakes go to chicken coops, right? You've heard that. So the snake, enticed by the smell of the eggs, crawls into the little hole and he cannot get out, or she cannot get out. You'll find her quietly laying in the cage when you come back, and you'll take her to your neighbor's yard and let her loose. <laughs> Problem solved. No flames, no fuss, no snake across your face. I'd show you a video of a very nice gentleman releasing a small garter snake from a minnow trap right now, but I promise not to put snakes on the screen, so I won't. I'll just tell you that there was this nice video about this tiny little snake that got trapped and he let it loose in a woodpile because snakes like woodpiles. Personally, I wouldn't have done it if it was my woodpile because I don't want to find him again, but you know, neighbor's yard. All right, so now you know how to humanely capture a snake that's gotten into your camper. You know how to capture it like in the week and a half before you go to family camp. Ray, if you're watching, you're welcome. All right, farm fresh eggs are the best way to bait snakes. You can catch raccoons with sweet things, put honey on anything and throw it in the trap. They'll come after it. Armadillos are kind of disgusting. They like rotten stuff, smelly stuff. I looked those up too. I am not an expert trapper, as you know. I, I kind of look like one though, don't I? Yeah, anyway, I'm just a really decent Googler. So here's a new question. What is the best bait for trapping you? Ooh. I know that's a terrible question. None of us likes thinking about how often or how easily we get tricked into doing things we'd rather not do, but if we don't talk about it or think about it, we won't know how to see temptation coming and avoid it. We're going to get stuck in sin ruts, aren't we? So what temptation do you fall for every time? Don't say it out loud. In what ways does the enemy tempt you on a regular basis? What allurements does he use to trip you up time and time again? What's his go-to bait for the trap of sin in your life? I'm not trying to convict you or condemn you or any of that. I just want you to think about that. We talked a few weeks ago about the parable of the sower. And one of the ways that the devil or the tempter uses to lead us into fruitless living, Jesus said, was to get us caught up in the distractions of this world. And a couple of big stealers of attention are social media and entertainment. They keep us from God's word and from prayer. We find time to scroll, but we don't scroll or even look at God's word sometimes. 
recognizing my own tendency to default to mindless scrolling through Facebook or binge-watching way too much TV, I put time limits on social media apps on my phone and cut out most of my TV viewing. I still watch a movie here and there, but doing these things might seem like, whoa, un-American, a bit too much, I don't know. But for me, with my propensity to waste time on distractions, they became a necessity. I don't want these things to become idols which keep me from God. I don't want the world's opinions and attitudes to become so entrenched in my own mind that they start changing my attitudes to things that God doesn't like. Jesus, right after telling his followers that lust is as equally sinful as adultery, said something pretty shocking. You'll find his words in Matthew 5, 29 to 30, and as I read, understand that he's using extreme words to get across the seriousness of dealing with sin in our lives. So here's what Matthew 5, 29 and 30 say. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble... Cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. All right, everybody raise your right hand. As I suspected, most of you have them. If you've ever sinned with your right hand, you've obviously understood that Jesus was speaking figuratively. But things like adding timers to your phone or maybe Taking apps off of your phone, that's kind of what he's talking about, is cutting that right hand off so that you don't keep going down the same path, so you don't keep stumbling into the same sin, and don't waste huge amounts of time on trivial stuff. There's an interesting verse in the middle of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. As Paul opens up his instructions concerning sexual immorality, which was as big a problem in his day as it is in ours, he said this in verse 12. Listen to what he says. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 12. And he's quoting other people. He's saying this is what people in the the community are saying. Maybe some people in the church are saying. This is a quote. I have the right to do anything, you say. But not everything is beneficial. I have a right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. It is this verse which led me to begin working on self-control in the areas of social media and entertainment. I don't want to be mastered by anything that will keep me from knowing God and from loving people. Yes, there are ways to be a blessing through Twitter and Instagram, but are you using these platforms to be a blessing, or are you just whiling away the hours mindlessly? If you have time for TikTok, but not for God... Now, I'm not judging. I'm simply asking you to consider your priorities. I'm inviting you to talk with God about what's important and to let him guide you in your use of your life. I'm guessing you figured out already that we're talking about temptation today. The Bible has quite a lot to say about this topic, but interestingly, the word is not found once in the Old Testament. 
Not in any form. Not tempt, not tempting, not tempter, or tempted. Were people in the Old Testament tempted? Yeah, they were. They were lured into sin by the flesh and by the devil. We know that they were. It's only three chapters into Genesis when the serpent shows up to tempt Eve to lure her in to eat that forbidden fruit. Three chapters. We don't know how many years that was, but three chapters is not very far in. Page two. And the serpent shows up and tempts Eve with that fruit. Also in the Old Testament, we see Samson tempted to lust over women and Job tempted to curse God. His wife told him to curse God and die. And then David's tempted to kill Saul in a cave. And there's all sorts of temptation throughout the Old Testament. People falling for it and people resisting it. Temptation has been around for a very, very, very long time. But what exactly is it? Does the Bible define it? Yeah. Turn with me to the beginning of the book of James. At the very beginning of the first chapter of his book, Jesus' brother writes the following about temptation, explaining what it is. And I'm going to read James 1, verses 13 to 15. James 1, 13 to 15 says this, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So, temptation is an evil desire which entices us towards sin. That's our working definition. Temptation is an evil desire which entices us towards sin. Back to the story of the first temptation. What was the evil desire which was enticing Eve and Adam, who was there with her, to break God's command? What was that evil desire? It's in the serpent's words. Listen to the first part of the story of mankind's fall into sin from Genesis 3, 1 to 5. I'm reading enough of the story for us to hear the enticement. Here we go. Starting at verse 1, Genesis 3, 1 to 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Pause here. Did God say that? Was that the command? No, nah, he said you can eat from any tree except this one. But the serpent here, the devil, likes to just kind of twist truth. So here we go. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree which is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. The touch part wasn't in God's command, but there we go. Verse 4, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's the evil desire? What are the first couple enticed to believe and to subsequently act upon against God's command? The temptation, the evil desire which was enticing them to sin was that they could eat so that they could be like God and know good and evil. Anyone here glad they know evil? I would much prefer knowing good and good only. Who needs evil? 
Nobody likes it. Let's just ban it. Except that we keep tripping up and doing things that are evil ourselves. <laughs> and sometimes we get so judgy about other people's sins and because they sin differently than us and we think those are horrible, but we let ourselves off the hook. All evil does is destroy and deceive and damn. Temptation entices toward sin, toward evil, but it is not sin. That's important. Temptation is not sin. Listen to what Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says about Jesus and this thing that we're talking about, this temptation. Was Jesus tempted? Here's the answer. Again, we're in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. This is vital for us to understand if we're going to understand what temptation is. It is not sin, so listen up. Here we go, verse 14, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Temptation is not sin. Temptation is the invitation to sin. Jesus was invited to sin. He was enticed and invited by the devil, but he did not sin. So when you're enticed to sin, don't beat yourself up. Good news, the devil does it to everybody. You're not alone. Turn to Jesus who resisted temptation and did not sin. He understands what you're going through. That's what it was saying there. We don't have a high priest who doesn't get it. He's been there. Turn to him, the one who knows what you're going through, and he will give mercy. Did you catch that? He will give mercy and grace to stand up against the enticement to sin. In your time of need, when you're tempted, he'll help you. One of my favorite passages on temptation is found in Paul's first letter to the church of Corinth. We're going back there. Sorry, I didn't tell you to put your finger there. But in chapter 10, the apostle gives an example of how the people of Israel fell into sin in the Old Testament times. Then at the chapter's end, he says some challenging yet encouraging things to the church about dealing with temptation. He offers a caution or a warning and a promise. So skipping over the historical examples, you can go back and read that if you'd like. But listen to what Paul says about temptation in verses 11 to 13. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 11, 13. Remember, we're looking for the warning in his words, and we're looking for the promise as well. Here we go, verse 11. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm... Be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Did you catch the warning in verse 12? If you are proud of your standing and your ability to avoid sin, I'm not going to fall for that. You better watch out. Be careful. If you think you're above sinning, oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. 
The people in Moses' day were rescued by God, and then thinking that they were secure and that they had it all together, they turned to idols. They bowed down to the baby cow. Remember that? They started worshiping all the idols around them, and they started turning away from God, even though it was God who rescued them. They thought they were standing firm and secure, and yet they abandoned the God who had brought them out of Egypt. And they became sexually immoral, and they grumbled against God and his leaders, and they did all sorts of sinful things. Don't be like them. You can fall into sin just as easily as anybody else. Can I get an amen on that? Yeah. Be alert. Ask daily, sometimes hourly, sometimes minutely, secondly. I don't know. Ask for the Spirit's help at all times. The great thing here is that this caution is followed by a two-part promise. Verse 13 is so great. God says he won't let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. You'll be able to endure the temptation. This is assuming that you're submitted to him and allowing the Spirit to guide you in each and every moment of your life, that Christ is living his life in you. If that's the case, then God says a most amazing thing. He says that he will provide a way out when temptation comes, and he'll do it every single time. Of course, we already knew this. When we read Hebrews 4, we heard God's word to us in verse 18 when he told us to approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we could receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. God gives mercy and grace every time. Every time we're enticed to sin, every time our flesh points us toward evil, if we will approach God's throne, he will help us. He'll show us the way of escape. One of the most effective ways to overcome sin is to open up about it with a trusted brother or sister in Christ. Could be your spouse, but more likely it's going to be someone of the same gender as you, whom you have confidence in, someone you know is not going to blab. Because we're not truthful and open and real unless we know that we can trust a person, right? Let me read a verse to you, or some verses. A verse which pops up all the time at Celebrate Recovery meetings. You know I'm going to tell you you need to be there, but here we go. I don't know how many times I've heard this verse on Monday night. The verse is James 5.16. I'm going to read it for you in context, starting at verse 13, so you can kind of get where James is going with this. But here it is. James 5.13-16 says, If anyone among you is in trouble, let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, verse 16, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. If you want freedom from the power of sin, James says to confess it to another person. Maybe to a group of people. Confess and let your brother pray over you. Open up to your sister and be healed. This week I heard Kyle Winkler on the Shut Up Devil show put it this way. There's healing in the revealing. 
I got to tell you, shame is broken and becomes less and less of an issue as you open up and say, man, I messed up. Honestly, the Catholic Church does a lot better at this than we do. Yeah, I'm not sure that I believe that confession has to be to a priest. In fact, I'm pretty sure it doesn't. And I don't really support doing penance because our salvation is not by works and our forgiveness is by the grace of God. But I think the practice of confession is a good one. The Catholics do what they do because of this verse, because of James 5.16. Perhaps we can swallow our pride and in some way follow this example and find healing in our own lives. God's way of escape may be in meeting with an accountability partner regularly. Pray about that. If you decide this is the way, I can tell you that there's some trustworthy folks who meet here on Monday nights. You're welcome to join us at 7 o'clock on Monday nights for Celebrate Recovery. You don't know what you're missing out on. I found freedom from a lot of stuff. I'm currently working on that stuff I talked about at the beginning, the social media and entertainment stuff, but God's freed me from fear and from, from all sorts of things. See you tomorrow night. Let's talk about another means of escape that God may use to rescue us from the temptations that we fall into or that we're failing to overcome. Turn with me to Psalm 119. This is the longest psalm, and no, I am not going to read all of it to you. There's 176 verses. We're just going to read a short section, verses 9 to 16. This particular psalm, in the way that it's structured, focuses attention on God's word, using each letter of the Hebrew alphabet to encourage dependence upon what God has revealed. So Psalm 119, 9 to 16 is the B section of the alphabet, and every verse starts with the second letter of the Jewish alphabet. You can't see that in English, but it's true. That's kind of a cool thing to note. So here we go. This is very structured. Go to God's word. Let's see what we can learn about escaping from sin in this psalm's words. Here we go. Verse 9, how can a young person or an older person, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. How can you escape sin and remain pure? Whether you're young, like the person that's mentioned in verse 9, or an older-than-dirt saint, the path is the same. Live according to God's word. Actually, I think it's plainer in the Amplified Bible. Listen, it says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping watch on himself according to your word, conforming his life to your precepts. Pretty clear, isn't it? Keep a watch on yourself and conform your life to God's word and his ways. Now, please understand, this is not a save yourself by being good passage. Salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ. It's offered by grace, not by works, period. You must believe on Jesus to be saved from the guilt of sin. But this passage is showing the way to freedom from the power of sin. 
It's going to God's word for instruction. It's, it's letting the Spirit use God's word to change our thoughts, to transform our minds. It's daily submission to God's will. I mentioned Kyle Winkler a little bit ago. He taught me a few things this week about meditating on God's words in order to conform our lives to God's word and to escape from temptation. In the episode of the Shut Up Devil show entitled Positioning Yourself for Effortless Change and Growth, Winkler teaches the difference between law-based meditation and grace-based meditation. I thought his words might be helpful, so I want you to hear them. I'm going to play about three minutes of his YouTube video, and I hope that you'll find it helpful. You might want to take some notes so you can put it into practice. So here is Kyle. So I'm going to show you the difference here, just so it really sinks in here, so you get it, between a law-based approach to meditation versus the grace-based approach that really works. Let's say you're battling lust. Well, lust doesn't keep God from loving you, but like anything that consumes you or is a stronghold, it could keep you from loving God to the fullest. It could hold you back from things that God wants for you. And so for your good, God doesn't want you to be consumed by anything, certainly not lust. So a law-based approach to deal with lust would be to take a scripture that tells you not to lust and to speak it over and over and think it over and over. Do not lust. Do not lust. Something like maybe 2 Timothy 2.22. It says, flee from youthful lust. So the law-based approach would take that and constantly say, I flee from youthful lust. I flee from youthful lust. I flee from youthful lust. Don't lust. Don't lust. Don't lust. Except it doesn't really work when you do it that way. It doesn't have the outcome that you're hoping because the more that lust is on your mind, the more you're likely to fall to it. Just like the more you think about chocolate, the more you're likely to crave it. Whenever you put anything in your mind, that influences how you act. This is why 1 Corinthians 15.56 says that law empower sin. The more you focus on do's and don'ts, the more you actually do the don'ts. That's why the grace-based approach to meditation is the only one that really works. And the way you do it is to take a scripture like 1 Corinthians 1.30, which says that God has made us right. Christ has made us right with God. He made us pure and holy. He freed us from sin. And reflect on what that means and say it in your own words. I might declare something like, I am made right in Christ. I am pure and holy. I am freed from sin. Now, I know that sounds kind of opposite because you're battling lust and now you're declaring, I am made right with God and I am free from sin. Doesn't that sound contradictory? Well, that's how things are in the kingdom. The point is not to keep telling yourself what to do or don't do. Stop putting law on yourself, but tell yourself who you are. Prophesy to yourself where you are because of Jesus. That gets your mind focused on the right thing, so that right believing turns into right behaving, which turns into right living. 
really good. As soon as I heard that while I was out running around in the dark, I was like, man, it's so encouraging. Listening to him helped me to see how we can move away from don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And how moving away from that brings freedom in knowing who we are. So what sin are you dealing with over and over? Don't just beat yourself up with words condemning your behavior. Read scripture that points you to God's character and what he wants to do in your life, to God's power to help you, and to who you are in relationship with him, because it's in him that you have the power to say no to sin. If you can get that word into your heart and mind, you can, when tempted, recall it, and with God's help, overcome sin. Listen, all of us face temptation, and we've all fallen into the traps of the devil. The things that he's allured us with. No one's without sin. You know, it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and we all say, yep, that's me. We just come and admit it so that we can be free. So, none of us is without sin, but we can all become freer and freer from sin in our lives as we seek God in prayer and grow in our faith. We can become better at saying no to temptation. We can fall less often as we go to God's word and understand who we are. Here's how. It's by turning from evil desires which entice us to sin over and over. We can turn those things over to God when they first arise. Don't entertain them. Like you wouldn't entertain a snake in your camper, right? Don't entertain them. Turn those things over to God. It is God who will free you. You will not do it in your own strength. Anybody here want to argue that? You're never going to get it done in your own strength. You need help. And God is the only one who can rescue you. You can do it by crying out to God for mercy and grace to help you in your time of need, by inviting God to show you the way of escape, the way to take, calling a friend or a, for accountability, either when you've sinned or better yet, before you've sinned, when that enticement comes, hello, help. And by taking up God's word and letting it change the way you think and the way you live and let God transform your mind. I encourage you now as we close with a time of prayer to begin this process, to confess your sin to God and to ask God for help in overcoming it. Seek him for how you can escape. Ponder with him who you are and, and who you might invite into your life to come alongside you and journey toward freedom with you. Somebody who you trust, who can hold you accountable, and who can be a blessing and an encouragement when you're doing the the right thing and when you overcome and say yes God's at work I want you to go to God now and see what he wants to do in and through you and what he wants to do in you in this moment today take your temptations and your sins to him and talk with him about it and ask him to show you the way of escape that's your assignment let's do it now Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness, oh Lord, how I need you.
God, we do need you. We cannot escape from sin without your help. We're so grateful that you always provide the way out and that if we're submitted to you instead of foolishly thinking we can stand on our own, that you help us. God, help your church this week to live in the freedom that you've offered to us. Through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. If you want to hear each week's message, be sure to subscribe to Friendly Words in your podcast app. May God bless you as you follow Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit.